and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Robert Dice, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa. And we're talking about creating the Bible revisiting the world of God and the work of men. Our history bus for today is Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. Our engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. And the great author and composer of our song, Kayla Theme, was Mark Zap Zapsel. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we'll be talking about creating the Bible, revisiting the Word of God and the work of man with Dr. Robert Dice, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hi, glad to be here. We are excited to have you here. So let's start off with just some background information. Uh, how and when was the Bible written? Well, I mean, the first thing that you that, that you have to do is confront the fact that there's not just a Bible. There are lots of different Bibles out there. So it, it to a large extent depends on which Bible, whose Bible you're talking about. For example, there are two Jewish Bibles. The standard one that, that, that Jews use that they call the Tanakh, 24 books, Christians divided up into 39. And then there's then there's another Jewish Bible, the Hebrew text translated into Greek back in antiquity, uh, known as the Septuagint. And uh, that's an important Bible, although the Jews don't use it today because that was the Bible that early Christians used. So you got two Bibles coming out of the Jewish tradition, and then the Christians adopt first the Septuagint, later on Protestant reformers go back to the, the, the classic Jewish uh, canon of texts. But Christians, of course, we add our own canon of text, the New Testament, and, um, and so uh, the New Testament itself grows slowly from uh, the mid-2nd century on down into the mid-4th century when there's finally agreement on all 27 texts in the New Testament. Now, Christian, Christian traditions vary about which texts they include in their Old Testament, because the Septuagint was never given a formal list of texts. So it's whatever was customary wherever communities happened to be. So the Catholic Church uses uh, 46 books in its Old Testament. Uh, Orthodox churches use 50 or more. Um, so there's, there's no such thing as just one Bible out there. And some of the books of the Old Testament include elements that go all the way back to the 8th century. They're chunks of the of the the prophet Isaiah, for example, that go back to the 8th century. Um, the last books that made it into the Jewish canon uh, to be composed were, was the book of Daniel, which was composed in the middle of the 2nd century BCE. And then the books of the Christian uh, New Testament were composed between about 50 CE and about 135 CE. So the, the things came together Texts were composed over a long period of time, and it took a, a long time for Jewish authorities and Christian authorities to come to agreement on what texts belonged in their various Bibles. And truth be told, no decision has ever been made by anybody that has authority over all Christians as to which texts belong in the Christian Bible. So there's lots of diversity out there. And in the course of all of that, I forgot your original question. <laughs> you you, you um, covered it very nicely. <laughs> right. And, and you truly did some. 
the question of a historian because you're going to get a 50-minute answer. So. <laughs> well, that's what this show is about. Uh, so back to the uh, authority of what is supposed to be there and what isn't, although, as you said, there's no hardcore decision. Um, I have heard um, countless people quote the Bible, and then I've politely said to them, which Bible are you talking about? And they look at me with this stare, like I am pretty much saying blasphemous things. Which one do you think in, let's say, America, because, uh, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but obviously there's other interpretations. Which one do you think that most Americans try to follow or they quote? Because uh, I always thought it was like a labyrinth of trying to figure out what the hell they were saying. Well, it really is. And when I, um, I, I sat down once in prepping an earlier lecture on this topic and ran through just what was available on Amazon.com at the time for English translations of the Bible, and I ended up with 28 English translations of the Bible available for sale. That doesn't include the ones that went out of print. So I have 70 Bibles plus in my library here at home. I'm looking at them right now. And, uh, and I've read all of them. Uh, the one that people traditionally cite is the King James translation of the Bible, right. which done by a panel of scholars back in the early 1600s. It's got all the these and thous in it and so forth and so on. It has a lot of problems. Uh, one of the problems is that, 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 that it depended on very faulty original texts. And so although it's an elegant translation and, of course, very Shakespearean, because he was working in London at the time, um, the textual basis on which it rests, especially in the New Testament, is very poor. So it's always best to uh, use more up-to-date translations. And so although it's traditional to, to quote the King James, um, the, uh, the, the newer translations that are out there, probably the new Revised Standard Version is the one that is prevalent among mainline Protestant uh, groups. Uh, the New International Version is probably the most prevalent of several versions that are widely used by evangelical or fundamentalist groups a lot of whom actually like the King James uh, preferably. And then, of course, the, the Catholic Church has the New American Bible, which just came out in, in a new edition uh, a couple of years ago, and also the uh, New Jerusalem Bible, produced by a panel of Catholic scholars but not formally adopted for, for uh, liturgical use by, by the, the Church itself. So there's a lot to choose from. I'm, I usually use the, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, I try not to assign that when I'm assigning Bibles in my classes because it does have denominational associations. So I will often go with the New Jerusalem Bible because almost alone among the English translations in the Old Testament texts, when the name of God is given, a devout Jew may not say God's name. And so instead they say Adonai, which means Lord. This is why you find capitalized Lord so much in English translation. The NJB isn't like that, though. Where it says Yahweh, the NJB has Yahweh, and I like that, that direct honesty from but there, it. But you can't say that there's any one that's best, because in biblical translations, different texts are assigned to different translators. So the, the quality of, of a translation can vary a lot, sometimes just from one book of the Bible to the next book of the Bible. Um, so 
Bob, along those lines, to, to go back to, to sort of original texts, um, there are a number of uh, Roman complaints uh, in the... Uh, in, in the, the first century, first couple of centuries that they couldn't figure out what Christianity was about because every time they, they wanted to ask somebody, they got a different answer because the texts were all different. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how many different uh, pieces of writing were out there from which various groups have put together Bibles and kind of what happened to those texts that didn't make the cut, so to speak? Well, the, the basic texts that, that comprise the, the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures um, are uh, relatively limited in number. So I, I said 24 books, as the Jews count them, in their Tanakh, which is what they call their, their, their Jewish scriptures. Protestants and Christians divide that up into 39 books. Um, and then there's the same 27 that all Christian groups use for, for, their, for their New Testament uh, and I, I told you a moment ago when all of those books came into being. But there is a large library of other texts out there. So, for example, on the Jewish side, you have the intertestamental writings that didn't make it into anybody's Bible, but that were preserved. And they make for some very enlightening reading. I've, I've, I've run through those uh, in the past and brings a lot of depth and body and context to the canonical text. And among Christian writings... Uh, a, a lot of those have disappeared, but every so often we get lucky. We blundered on to some trove of texts that uh, probably a monk hid in a, in a, at the base of the cliffs in the Nile Valley in the 4th century. These become known as the Nag Hammadi Library from where they were found, or the Gnostic Gospels. And they include, um, I've forgotten exactly how many texts, about three dozen, I think, that were not used by the church in, in the New Testament, but were popular in Christian splinter groups back in the first four or five centuries CE. Um, and and some, of those, some of those make you appreciate just how much good sense the bishops used in picking the text that would be included in the New Testament. They're all these Gnostic Gospels, as they're called, and they are way, way out there where the air is thin. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have their crazy moments, but they ain't anywhere as, as insane as what you find in the Gnostic Gospels. So, so, yeah, there are a lot of different texts out there that people at the time, of course, would have uh, found to be head-scratching, and people today find head-scratching also. I know because in a uh, uh, historical critical Bible study I run, we went through some of those Gnostic Gospels, and after about four months, we said never again. So, well, I, wow, I encourage okay. you, you know, summon up your courage and go pick up a copy of the Gnostic Gospels and see if I'm right. Oh, I've, I, I have read uh, all of those, and yeah. it's, it's, um, it makes for, for interesting uh, just-before-bed reading. Well, you know, we you know, had, Jay and I had a professor at Western Illinois named Dr. Watson, who both taught us in separate classes some of this stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's definitely the – there's some knuckleballs out there in the biblical game of baseball from some of those thoughts. Well, you know, the, the sanest of all of those texts is the Gospel of Thomas, which is just a collection of right. Jesus' sayings. We call it a sayings gospel. And, and, and the fact that the Gospel of Thomas is the sanest of those books tells you just how crazy the other <laughs> books are. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Wow. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned well, for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Robert Dice, who likes to go by Bob, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're talking about creating the Bible, revisiting the Word of God, and the work of man. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. Ed, you get the first question. Um, thanks, John. Bob, as one who had a whole semester of a foreign language in high school long ago, one of the things you learn is that there, in every language there are words and phrases that don't translate well into another language. And what little I know of the subject at hand is that a lot of those original texts were written in Aramaic. So can you explain to us um, your ideas on how some of these texts, uh, the written versions may have changed over time, as they, as they were translated from one language to the next, to the next, to the next. Sure. Um, I had to learn Greek, Latin, French, and German in the course of my education, which is why I'm a little squirrely around the edges. But the, the thing that uh, the, the text of the Jewish scriptures were all written in Hebrew, with the exception of Daniel, which is mostly Hebrew, but has some Aramaic in it. The text of the Septuagint Jewish scriptures translate Hebrew texts into Greek, though some of the texts in the Septuagint, known as the Apocrypha to a lot of Christians, were actually originally written in Greek. All of the books of the New Testament were written in Greek. The, the, the issue with uh, what people have to understand, the most direct place where you encounter the, the work of man in looking at the Word of God is in realizing that whatever you're reading it is produced by human beings. It's not just a question of authorship. No, none of the authors claims to be channeling the Holy Spirit. This is inspiration is something that the Church applied to these texts later on. But uh, the problem that that we have is that a when when they when they wrote these texts, typically you wrote a text by dictating it to a secretary. So you didn't write the text yourself. This is why Paul sometimes says, look, I'm writing this in my own hand at the end of one of his letters. If you wanted multiple copies, since they didn't have Xerox machines, you had multiple secretaries. So unless you went back and read every one of their copies, you didn't know if they got the same thing. So maybe even the first copies didn't agree with each other. And then to produce copies, of course, until the invention of movable type in the 15th century, what you had to do is hand copy the thing. So 
in in the my lecture on creating the Bible, I suggest to people an exercise where they can set up a, an ancient or medieval style copying room. You've got to turn off the heat, open up the windows, light a candle, turn off the lights, and take off your eyeglasses, and then the fun starts. <laughs> so, so you know, the, the problem of copying produces lots of errors, and we can actually give statistics on this. Uh, the books of the New Testament, we have as of five years ago, it's gone up since then, over 5,800 complete or partial Greek copies, Greek manuscripts, of the books of the New Testament, the earliest dating to about 135. It's a postcard-sized fragment of John. And a lot of the rest of them dating to just about the same time movable type came out. And the vagaries of, of copying in those challenging circumstances mean that no two of those 5,800 Greek manuscripts completely agree with one another. So, so this is the first thing textual scholars run across. You've got to get professors together to decide what the original text might have looked like. So not only do you get errors in copying, but then you've got somebody's judgment about what the text that you're going to translate should look like. And then you've got somebody who's got to sit down, and as you, as you pointed out, translating from one language into another is always a judgment call, and the greater the spread in time between the composition of the text you're translating in your own time, the more that the very ideas that underlie these words could have changed, and you can't always know how that happened. So when you read a Bible today, what you're seeing, even if you're looking at the Greek or the Hebrew, is some textual scholar's notion of what it should say. And if you're reading a translated text, it's a translator's opinion of what the text should say. So it's all layers of human opinion out there. It, it, it makes for, well, it's a sobering sort of thing to thought, think about. <laughs> okay, Terry. Yes, Bob, I'd like to piggyback on the question that Ed had on the problems in translating, specifically biblical Hebrew. Um, about a thousand years ago when I was in college, I took um, uh, biblical Hebrew, and we uh, translated um, Genesis. And I remember... Uh, that the problem was that the biblical Hebrew was originally written basically in consonants with, right. um, I don't remember the exact name, but critic marks or whatever they're called for the vowels. And therefore, some words could actually have the same consonants like spirit and wind, which then, of course, yeah. could actually totally change the meaning of the sentence that you're reading. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about biblical Hebrew back then? Yeah, of course. It, it, Hebrew is not on my list of the languages that I had to that I had to come to terms with. Um, I have a good friend here at UNI who who does uh, uh, ancient biblical stuff, and and Hebrew and Aramaic are, are both in his inventory. Um, the Hebrew alphabet is originally the same as the Phoenician alphabet. It's a consonantal alphabet, so they only use symbols for consonant sounds. If you knew the language, presumably you could plug in the vowel values. Later on, they had to add those vowel signs, which I think are the ones that are called Masora. Hence, the Masoretic text is the standard Hebrew text of the, that underlies the Tanakh that Jews use today. So the uh, Jews have, have, have applied very rigorous copying standards. Professional copyists made the manual copies of Jewish scripture starting from the second century on. So their copies were not subject to as much variation as Christian copies of, of the New Testament are. But the, um, 
the issue that you raise about, for example, spirit and wind, and the same thing applies in Greek. Pneuma uh, can be can mean either spirit or it can mean wind. It can mean soul too, as far as that goes. So, so what what word do you use to translate this? Context will help you some with that. But then again, the translator relies on his or her own opinion of what that context should be and which which translation to plug in. This gets really bad when you're dealing with the Greek word logos, the translations for which in, in the, the standard translating dictionary, going through 14 major ways you can translate it, subdivided into minor ways, in fine print, large page for a page and a half. <laughs> So, so it means so much more than word. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it does. So, um, Bob, my, my question is, up to this point, we've been talking about um, unintentional issues with translation yeah. variations. But my suspicion is that there may have been some very intentional translation changes um, if you're talking about translations being made over a long period of time, uh, every group who's doing translations would have its own um, sort of uh, axe to grind, so to speak, or, or political um, point to score. Do we have any um, indications of, of places where texts look to have been deliberately altered in terms of meaning in order to fit in with a culture or things like that? You're talking about the original Hebrew or Greek text, or are you talking about translations? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, a actually, uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, books, he's at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, prolific writer on uh, New Testament issues. Um, Bart Ehrman actually deals with, with, with some of these, these problems of copyists changing um, a text as they copied it in order to either change things they thought were probably an error in the text they were copying or to bring the text into, into line with their own community's belief system. And there, there aren't a lot of those types of places, but fortunately, if you've got enough manuscripts, you can get a sense for where you're running into that sort of thing. Now, what the original text might have said could be a different issue, but at least you'll you'll be alert to the suspicion that a copyist was uh, amending the text. Uh, and then, of course, this becomes an issue in modern translations. The most notorious example is how to translate Isaiah 7.14, in which uh, uh, when uh, was King Hezekiah asked uh, Isaiah for a, uh, a prophecy, he was facing a local political issue, alliance with a couple of neighboring states against Assyria, which is never a good idea. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, so, so Isaiah said, you know, before the Alma, the, the Alma is with child, and before the, the child is, is weaned, um, before it knows good and evil, this whole situation will play out. Um, anyway, Alma in Hebrew can, means young woman. Uh, but the problem was is that when Matthew was writing his gospel, he rendered it as virgin because he was using the Septuagint translation which rendered Alma as Parthenos, which means virgin. And so virgin becomes the basis for a lot of the textual basis for the doctrine of the virgin birth, which, of course, is central to Christian dogma. 
And so when we became aware of the fact that that had been a mistranslation, an honest one, uh, what to do about this? And so for a long time, fundamentalist Bibles, the King James has virgin there, of course, um, but the, the New American Bible also had virgin. And whereas the, the, the mainline Protestant Bibles had shifted over to saying young woman, I was interested to see in the latest edition, the most recent edition of the New American Bible, that uh, the translation of, um, of Alma in Isaiah now says young woman, and there's a footnote saying virgin. Um, and then, of course, there's, a, I think, another footnote to Matthew saying that in the, in, the Greek, in the Hebrew text, this term is actually young woman. So, you know, it, it's, all these kinds of issues float around. They don't usually have a major impact on doctrine the way that Isaiah 7.14 does, but, uh, but they're out there. There are other lesser ones out there, too. Okay. Um, Bob, it is usually customary um, to give our guests um, the last word on the show. So uh, out of the 72 versions of the Bible that you have, we want you to tell us what you think is the best one of all. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, just, you know, I couldn't help it. Uh, could you tell us why you think, knowing about the history and the writing of the Bible, um, especially with so many different verses and such a long history, is relevant in today's world? Why the Bible is relevant in today's world? No, or, or knowing the history of it. The writing. Yeah. Knowing oh, the history knowing and the writing. I, I think it, you, it's always advisable to be informed about things, because there are lots of people out there who make a living by misinforming other people. Sometimes they accuse professors of that. But it's always useful to be informed about... Um, about what truth underlies. I mean, everybody talks about the Bible, nobody reads it. Everybody talks about the Constitution, but nobody reads it. So it's always good to go read it, even if you're reading it in translation. I tell my students to get as close as possible to the original as, as they can. So it, it is very important in the face of the massive amounts of misinformation and disinformation we get, especially over the Internet, to uh, try to cut ourselves free of all of that and actually read the texts, and I told my students, who of course not going to have Greek and Hebrew at any point, to read as many different English translations of the Bible as possible, because then you get a feel for just how, how, how wide the range of ways you can translate a passage can be. And, and, it, and it helps to keep you, helps to keep you from becoming rigidly dogmatic. You, you, you retain an open mind on, on, on some very important issues run across. So, so that's why I think it, 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 it's important to be, to familiarize ourselves with how the Bible came to be, and especially in the form in which we all have it, because knowing that uh, the Bible embodies in the belief of the church the Word of God, but, but by any standards is the product of the work of man, should serve to give us a little humility and, uh, and a little generosity in dealing with people whose points of view differ from our own. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 399th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Robert Dice, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, who discussed with us about creating the Bible, revisiting the Word of God, and the work of man. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toplin. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners who have read all 72 different versions of the Bible to experience <laughs> the great Basutu proverb, Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>